Hi there, this is Rich Cooper with the Space Foundation, and this is the Space for You podcast. Conversations with the people who make today's space adventures possible. Today I'm here with Bill Berry, NASA's chief historian, and he is the guardian of what I will call probably the coolest space archives on the planet. Um, probably even more interesting than what the Smithsonian owns. But with a job like NASA chief historian, Bill, I gotta ask, what does the NASA chief historian do? Well, chief historian is kind of an interesting title. It's really more like chief bureaucrat from a day-to-day basis because it's really a management job. I mean, I take care of the, the archive program and history program which means I spend a lot of time in meetings and doing performance reviews and people's time cards and and that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of sort of management work that's involved. So you need to have a stomach for you know, dealing with the bureaucracy, I guess, if you're going to be the chief historian. but You mean there's paperwork involved with history? Uh, there's always paperwork involved with history. In fact, you can't do history without lots of paperwork. At least not do it right. So how do you train for a job like this as far as, you know, managing <laughs> something like this? And I understand what you said about managing performance reviews, but what's your background that gets you into a spot like this and access to the talent archives that you have? Yeah, that's a question I get quite frequently is, you know, basically the question is, how do I get to be chief historian after you're done? I was going to say, <laughs> how do I get your job? <laughs> I get that a lot. And and my advice to people is don't follow my path because it's it was a very long and circuitous and kind of random one. But uh, in my particular case, um, I spent uh, 22 years in the Air Force and uh, about half of that time I was teaching at the Air Force Academy. Um, and when the Air Force very nicely sent me off to get my graduate work done, uh, I'd been basically a Soviet area studies sort of specialist for most of my academic career anyway. I was supposed to go study Soviet defense policy, but by the, between the time I got selected to go to graduate school and the time I actually arrived at graduate school, the Soviet Union vanished. And, and suddenly there, I had, to, had a PhD in my opportunity in my hand and no real topic to talk about. Uh, and so uh, about that time, the, the lid came off on the former Soviet space program, and lots of things came out about what was going on in, in the 1960s, and, and that seemed really interesting to me. Unfortunately, my advisor was very interested in that, so um, that, that, that became my, my dissertation topic. And, and so I became sort of a Soviet history, space history person uh, in the process of doing that. Um, and I got to know the NASA chief historian at the time, George Alanius. So when I was retiring from the Air Force, <laughs> Roger sends me this note at one point and says, Bill, why aren't you applying for a job at NASA? And I said, Roger, what are the odds that, that you know, you're going to be dumb enough to leave your job at this point or somebody else is that where they need my kind of weird skill set? Um, and he said, well, you never know. And it turns out Roger, as usual, was right. Uh, the international office here at NASA was interested in, in uh, hiring me to work on Soviet policy stuff that we were doing with the, with the, with the Russians, sorry, Russian policy. And so I got hired by NASA in um, 2001. Uh, worked uh, on Russia-U.S. relations for a couple of years. Then they sent me off to Paris to be the, of course, I'm a Russia specialist, so where they sent me when they sent me overseas to work in an embassy uh, to represent NASA, they sent me to Paris to work with the Europeans instead of the Russians. <laughs> so it's bureaucracy work. And uh, so I did that for three years, and when I was coming back from that, that job, uh, the NASA chief historian job was open. You know, I had a PhD in basically Soviet space history and lots of teaching experience, lots of experience in the bureaucracy, and, and I happened to be in the right place at the right time, and I got offered the job, and I was very happy to take it. So, Right place, right time. Yeah. Um, how do you become a chief historian at NASA? 
A, you know a lot about history, but you also need to have kind of some bureaucratic chops. You need to know how the bureaucracy works and be able to deal with the paperwork and, and all the other stuff. I've, you know, I've been working for the government my entire adult life, so um, I think that was probably the primary qualification in my case. Um, well, let me ask you, you talk, as someone who's NASA's chief historian, but then spending time dealing with the then Soviet Union, i got to ask this quick question uh, out of the gate biggest differences that you've seen between NASA history and Soviet space history? Uh, well, I think the biggest difference is that in the former Soviet Union you know, and Russia these days, um, uh, the perspective on history is that, that history is written for a purpose, uh, whereas in sort of the Western approach to history, it's you're trying to get at some fundamental truth. Uh, and, that, and there's this concept that, in fact, there is some, some factual truth out there that you can find and, and talk about. Uh, not so much on the, on, the, on the Russian and Soviet side, at least historically. So you tend to find history there written for a purpose, like to, to feather somebody's nest or the, um, you know, push forward some idea. So you, you need to, when you're dealing with, with those folks, you need to have an idea of um, sort of where, you know, who they are, where they sit, where they've been, and what their perspective is on things. Um, and then if you look at the Soviet space program, uh, to me, the big the big thing that stands out is that you know we see the Soviet space program from the early 60s as being this this monstrous machine where they had they were incredibly powerful and could do these things. It's really not that at all. I mean, there really wasn't the Soviet space program. There were a couple of um, very uh, talented individuals and had small teams that were extremely good engineers, like Sergei Kolyov, who led, the, led what's now Space Corporation Energia. That group, very nimble, very smart very capable of pulling things off, but really the, the political uh, decision to have a program of space exploration really didn't exist. What they had was a series of sort of one-offs. Um, okay, you can launch Sputnik because, you know, you've been irritating me about that for a long time. And the top, very top political leadership of the Communist Party of Soviet Union makes that decision. There was no program beyond that other than, oh, well, that got a big international reaction. What can you do next? We can launch a dog into space for you. And, and the program, very clearly to me, becomes sort of a series of one-off events. Well, what can you do about this? Um, and they really don't make a decision to do sort of um, serious human space exploration until 1964 when they decide that the United States is actually serious about going to the moon. And then they initiate uh, their own lunar prog program, several programs actually, to try and hedge their bets. And in hedging their bets, they actually sort of shot themselves in the foot. So instead of having a larger, concise plan the way we laid out Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, as you're saying, it was just truly one step and sort of tripping over themselves that what can we do next and... Yeah, I, I mean, there were the, the people who actually ran the program, the engineers and scientists behind the program, I think, were extremely good. I mean, they were really incredible. Um, and so, I, you know, I don't want to you know, tarnish, you know, their reputation at all, but, but their dreams about what they would like to do were never incorporated by the political leadership in any great, to any great extent. So the program, if you want to call it a program, um, becomes sort of a series of, you know, these sort of one-off events. And it, it was, it's really kind of the opposite. You know, we sort of see this, the Soviet Union as this, you know, they had a big long-term plan, they were going to do this great thing, and, and, and we see ourselves as kind of stumbling to catch up. In reality, it's really quite the opposite. I mean, if you think about it, the Soviet Union had one launch vehicle that we're still using now, right? The, the thing that launched Sputnik, uh, the R-7, basically the Soyuz launch vehicle now. It's been modified and improved a lot, right? But it's the same launch vehicle. Now it's the only one they had until, like, 1963. We had, in the U.S., 
we, we had at least six different launch vehicles being developed based on various ICBMs and things like that, uh, as well as you know, sort of civil ones that were being developed at the time. Our program was much broader and much more powerful. We just didn't have the sort of nimble ability to, to figure out, A, what are the Soviets going to do next, and then B, beat them to the punch. Because we were doing everything in the open, they could watch what we were doing, and they could see, for example, that, uh, oh, gee, the United States is being embarrassed by Jerry Cobb and these women who, who think that they ought to be astronauts, and, and so, you know, let's find a couple women who can launch into space. And that's where, <laughs> that's where the whole Valentina Tereshkova thing came from, was that happens after they see what's going on in the U.S., and they make a decision because they didn't, they didn't have anything else to do. In the, in the spring of 63, they didn't have any new that it could do. So they basically flew the same mission that they flown the previous year in 1962, which was two Vostok spacecraft flying to orbit together. In 63, they don't have anything really new to do, so let's make it interesting. We'll put a woman on board. They fly Tereshkova once, and you never see a Russian woman fly in space again until the next time the United States is about ready to fly a woman in space. So very much, very much politically driven and very much sort of a one-off program. Not to take away from the fact that, that they had incredibly gifted and talented folks who, who really made things work, but but not the sort of programmatic machine that we tend to imagine that the Soviet space program was when we think about, about it. One of the crown jewels that any history program has is its archives. Tell me a little bit about the NASA archives, what's in there, and how does someone access those archives? Ah, okay, great question. We... Um, of course, as a government agency, um, all government records in the United States are supposed to go to the National Archives and Records Administration, um, and NASA's records do go there. But most agencies, as, as does NASA, have uh, you know, retained a certain number of records uh, or copies of things, in particular in our case, but it's almost all copies of documents because it's often hard to access stuff in the National Archives. So we retain uh, reference collections. We have one here at NASA headquarters. Um, most of the NASA centers have a collection that they have for things that are important to them. The, the collection here at headquarters is largely focused on policy issues, you know, headquarters level things, uh, but we also have a lot of depth and detail of other things, largely because our first archivist, um, Lisa Agasser, was, uh, was such an um, avid collector, shall we say, of just about anything you could find. Is avid collector a polite way of saying a pack rat? Uh, yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but Lee did an amazing job of, of uh, when he was hired in the early 60s, of starting the archive and, and building it up. We've done some, some cleaning up down there as, as time goes along and, and um, uh, as we find things. One of the, and one of the things recently we found actually that we actually had a file on J. Edgar Hoover. You have files we had, on Hoover. We had a file on and I think that the whole reason was because that's a first. I think that was the irony of that appeal to Lee, and uh, he thought it was funny that we would have a file on Jagger Hoover since Jagger Hoover seemed to have a file on everybody else. So we had, it was mostly news clippings and stuff that, that he found in the Washington Post and other things like that. Um, and we didn't need a file on Jagger Hoover, so we eventually purged that one and get get rid of it. But you purged uh, it? Yeah, we you know we did you know, we digitized things that were of use to it to us, but most of it was like I said clippings from. Oh, I think articles. the rest of the country would love to see a file on J. Edgar Hoover that somebody else came up with. It, it, it wasn't very informative <laughs> other, than, other than what appeared in newspapers about J. Edgar Hoover. But, um, so the collection is eclectic, to say the least, very broad-based. Um, we have quite a bit of stuff. Many people who are writing about space history uh, will come here 
Margaret Lee Shetterly, the woman who wrote Hidden Figures, one of the first places she came as she was doing her research for that book was here. She spent uh, you know, quite a bit of time in our archive downstairs. So how do you get to the, the archive? It's open to the public. Um, you have to, it's a government building, so you can't just walk in the building and, and use it. But you make it go to our website, make an appointment to see our folks downstairs, you know, our archival team, and, and they'll be happy to host people to, that want to come to research and look at uh, what we have in the collection here. Or we can send you to you know other uh, NASA facilities that have uh, open archives. Some of them are open, some are closed. Like, for example, Armstrong Flight Research Center is in the middle of Edwards Air Force Base, and it's difficult to get access onto the Air Force Base, so that one's not an open archive. But generally speaking, we're working, we're moving towards a situation where we're digitizing as much as we can, and then we're, we're making that stuff available online. So we'll also we also have access to our collection online. Uh, in fact, we're uh, about to roll out this summer a new uh, history website at history.nasa.gov that will allow people to to get more direct access to the archival collection uh, than we've had in the past. So, and it'll be mobile friendly, which will be nice too, so people can. You mentioned Hidden Figures, and, and we've had an, certainly a number of different movies like Hidden Figures and First Man and certainly Apollo 13, and you mentioned that different authors and researchers come here. Do you folks find yourself regularly consulting on movie and multimedia projects like that? And do you guys ever go back and say, hey, you got this wrong? I'm laughing about the you got this thing wrong part because with a feature film in particular, there's there's always a trade-off and you know trying to tell a story in 90 minutes in a way that that the public will pay money to go see. Uh, there's likely to be some compromises on the story, so there's always something about it that that someone won't like. But uh, in fact, the NASA History Office has has been helping out with uh, historical space and aerospace movies for years. Generally, that stuff is initiated by whoever's doing the movie. So, for example, um, when um, uh, Ron Howard was doing uh, From the Earth to the Moon, um, and Apollo 13 first, and then w- when uh, Tom Hanks did From the Earth to the Moon, both of those production companies came to the history office here and did some work here, and we sent them to other history facilities around uh, the agency where they needed to, to get uh, access to things to make sure they got the story straight, and, and so we helped out on that. Uh, and then from time to time, other historical movies, they're, they're, they're really, you know, after Apollo 13 and From the Earth to the Moon, there weren't that many. But in the last few years, there's been a big surge in interest. Uh, so we've been involved uh, pretty heavily in, in uh, some of the movies, like Hidden Figures, uh, First Man, um, the Apollo 11 documentary movie that the, you know the great one that Todd Miller just did. You know, we've been involved in, in providing both fact checks on things that they're interested in, but also just sort of general advice on where to find things um, and how to how to get to the, uh, data or or various other. Uh, archival material that might be of interest. When most people think about history, certainly American history, the Smithsonian comes to mind. NASA and the Smithsonian have had a long-standing relationship. Tell me a little bit more about that relationship and how does the Smithsonian get all of your cool leftover stuff? There's an agreement that NASA signed with the Smithsonian back in the early 60s. Off the top of my head, I think it was 62 or so, somewhere in that range, though, very early 1960s, where NASA agreed that any uh, artifacts that that we weren't going to keep, which we're, you know, we're a government agency and, and we're not allowed to build warehouses to, to stick the cool stuff in to keep it because it's cool. You know, we're we're required to 
to be good stewards of the taxpayers' money, and if we don't need something, it's time to get rid of it. You know, uh, if it's of historic interest, Smithsonian wanted those things. And so we we signed an agreement early on with the, the leadership of the, the Aerospace Museum that that they would basically have first dibs on anything that we were getting rid of. There's a there's an entire process that NASA now has for dealing with artifact material for how we um, move things out, and the, the Smithsonian still has a role to play in that. But first. If, if something is dis- determined to be excess, uh, it's offered to other parts of NASA organization, other other organizations in NASA first. And if they, if nobody else has a need for it, then it goes to the, okay, we're going to excess this. Where does it go to? Smithsonian kind of gets a first shot at it. But also, uh, we want to make sure that other educational institutions and museums and stuff also have access to that material. But the the, rela- the agreement we have with the Smithsonian is that they're basically our museum of record. Um, so I like to tell you know new employees when they come into NASA headquarters, that, you know. You won't find a whole lot of NASA's history in this building because it's just a government building. But three blocks away, you walk over to the Aerospace Museum, that's basically our museum. Don't tell the Aerospace Museum guys I said that. Yeah, I'm glad we don't have that on tape. Yeah, we wouldn't have, wouldn't have that on tape. That'd be too embarrassing. Yeah, we wouldn't want to be quoted on that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> really, if you walk in there and you walk into the milestone of the flight gallery, how many of those things hanging in the milestones of the flight gallery say NASA on them or NACA? A lot of the cool stuff that's there is the NASA stuff. And, and really, uh, you can see the the whole panoply of aerospace history there uh, in both government and NASA related things but also all the other private stuff and, and corporate stuff that's happened in, in our in our history in aerospace but for a NASA employee to walk around there it really is a lesson on all the great things that the giants that worked in this agency before us have done and it's a to me, it's a huge boost to walk around there and see, you know, this is what the people before us did, and this is the legacy they left us, and this is what we're building on in terms of, you know, putting humanity um, into the leading edge of aerospace research and exploration. If history is a brand, you guys certainly have by far the the probably the greatest brand anywhere within the federal government, if not the country, in that regard. Uh, the minute someone sees that logo, they, they immediately know, hey, they've done some really, really great things there. But with the 50th anniversary of Apollo now being celebrated over the next several years, and we've got the moon landing anniversary coming up here, what is, as a historian, I, I've got to ask you, what if there's a particular piece of history out of those life-changing missions that you think deserves more credit or more attention that hasn't really seen the light of day. What is that sort of piece of history? We always focus upon certainly the moon landing, which is great, but there are some other big pieces that probably deserve attention. There are so many things uh, in in NASA history that I think are are underappreciated by people. I mean, I think everybody understands. You see the NASA logo, the what we call the, affectionately the meatball, that round logo with the red splash across it. Which, by the way, that red thing on it there. That's an actual uh, supersonic wing design from the 1950s that was um, incorporated into design by the guy who designed the NASA logo. Many people refer to it as a vector or the wing or some other thing. Um, but it was actually a classified project that the NACA was working on in the late 1950s for the Air Force. And that's part of the reason why they were kind of unclear about what it was. But it's actually based on an actual wind tunnel model that the guy who designed the, the logo actually saw. Anyway. That's not, I think, the most important thing to understand about, about NASA history, but the NACA, the organization that NASA was built on, the National Advisory Committee for um, Aeronautics, founded in 1915. Much like NASA, it was created after, or during World War One when the United States realized it was behind in aeronautics research. And we invent the airplane, but then 10 years later, 
the Europeans were far ahead of us. Uh, so again, the NACA comes into being as a, as a way to catch up in terms of research. And that's an amazing organization that, that because we jumped into the space program and uh, in the 1960s and that became the exciting thing, um, the NACA history I think is very much not appreciated. Uh, that's one thing. From Apollo history in particular, the thing that I think is most interesting, and in part because it's my personal interest area, is the, the Soviet space program and what happened. The story that really doesn't fit with the profile that most people think of about the Apollo program is the fact that the moon race happened. I mean, most people these days, you know, if you ask them about it, it's like, yeah, we w- President Kennedy said we're going to go to the moon because we needed to beat the Soviet Union, right? And then, well, whatever happened to that Soviet Union thing? People sort of say, well, assume that they dropped out of the race. Uh, in fact, there was a race to the moon. It just didn't start when we thought it did, and it didn't end when we thought it did either. The Soviets didn't take the, the Kennedy challenge seriously until after President Kennedy was dead, and we were and we were starting to build rockets that were bigger than theirs. In the spring of 1964, they had a wake-up call, and they realized that the United States was really serious about going to the moon. And so they initiated in the summer of 64 not one, but two competing human programs to send people to the moon. One was to send a circumlunar flight around the moon, and the other was basically a duplicate of Apollo to send one astronaut to the surface of the moon. Um, those programs wound up competing with each other, and, and neither of them wound up being successful. Uh, and after Apollo 8 flies around the moon in, in 1968, their best chance of beating us by flying someone around the moon uh, gets preempted by Apollo. And you'd think, okay, so the moon race is over in, in December 1968. But you'd be wrong. Because in January 1969, the Soviet Politburo met, and they said, we can't let the Americans beat us to the moon. We have to have something. And they turned to their robotic probe maker, a guy named Lavochkin, and he designed in six months a probe that could go to the moon and bring back a sample. They launched the first one of those in June of 1969. The rocket it was on blew up before it got into orbit. They launched a second one on July 13th, uh, 1969, three days before Apollo 11 launched. It, that probe, Luna 15, was in orbit around the moon when the Neil and Buzz and Mike arrived at the moon. Neil and Buzz land on the moon. They do their EVA. They're back in the lunar module. The Soviets realize that they're run out of time. And what we didn't know at the time was that the radar, radar altimeter, the thing that determines how high it is above the ground on Luna 15, was malfunctioning. They decided to go f- take a chance anyway. They, they hit the retro rockets on Luna 15 for it to land on the surface of the moon two hours before uh, Neil and Buzz are about to launch off the surface of the moon, and uh, Luna 15 crashed into a mountain. So when's the moon race actually end? July 21st, 1969, after we'd already walked on the moon. Because if they had landed Luna 15 on the moon and successfully gotten a sample back, which they did do a couple years later, actually, their, their robotic probe actually worked. But uh, if they'd been successful in July 1969, they could have so you sent two guys to the surface of the moon and endangered their lives. We did it safely with a robot probe. I think the you know, history would have been very different if that had been successful and it happened. All comes down to the photo op in the end, doesn't it? Uh, to a great extent, uh, you know, having those rocks and, and having those, those great pictures were, were a big thing. As communities around the country and literally around the world gather to sort of celebrate the Apollo 11 anniversary, what's the most important lesson they should know and share in remembering about that accomplishment? I think there are, there are a number of really important legacies that come out of the Apollo program. Um, and uh, I'd say that the, you know, the, the first one is the United States achieved the primary political, political objective of the Apollo program. Um, and you have to remember that 
the political objective of the Apollo program, the reason we spent $25 billion going to the moon, it wasn't for science or exploration or anything. It was because we were in a, in a race with the Soviet Union, uh, you know, the Cold War. And uh, in 1961, when the decision was made, there was a question around the world whether the U.S. Western democratic capitalist economic model was actually better than the Soviet model. There were countries, you know, new countries in the world, uh, new former colonies that were making choices and the decision to go to the moon was based on proving to the rest of the world that, in fact, our system worked better than the Soviet system. We achieved that objective, and, and then after that, you know, why did we not continue going, going to the moon? Well, because we'd achieved the objective and you know, checked the box. But the, the big thing to me is that uh, we achieved the political goal. That's the first thing. Second thing was, despite the fact that it wasn't a primary goal at the time when, we, when the decision was made, science became a really important part of the program. And, and the, the Apollo program, the samples we brought back, revolutionized our understanding of the Earth-Moon system and therefore the solar system and, and a whole bunch of other things. It had a huge impact on our understanding about the, the, the universe we live in. Third thing I would say that Apollo gave us was um, a huge technological boost to the economy. Now, would we have had uh, integrated circuits if we hadn't had Apollo? Yeah, they invented an integrated circuits. But the thing that happened with the computer revolution that Apollo had an effect on was that NASA was the biggest com customer for integrated circuits in the early 1960s. In fact, we were like the only person, only com only organization that was buying integrated circuits, and we were demanding them in huge numbers at high reliability rates. So, basically, Fairchild Semiconductor and a couple of other companies that were that were you know um, Texas Instruments and other companies that were designing the first integrated circuits. They were they were extremely expensive, highly unreliable. By the mid 1960s. They're incredibly, they're incredibly cheaper than they were and much more powerful than they had been. Um, and IBM, right, who at the same time that we made the decision to build the Apollo guidance computer based on integrated circuits, IBM was, was building it, their new series of computers. They decided to go with just transistors instead of integrated circuits because the integrated circuits were too expensive and not reliable enough. Uh, ten years later, when they're making a decision about the next round of computers, everybody's going with integrated circuits because the Apollo program had driven, it, driven the cost down. There was a demand, by the way, for the military side of the house for, for ICBMs. You needed integrated circuits for those two. But um, that really wasn't what drove the, the price and production quality. So what, what gift does Apollo give us economically? It basically gives us the computer revolution in a way that happens in uh, a quick uh, way that's publicly open. You know, if it had just been Minuteman ICBMs, would integrated circuits have proliferated into the economy so fast? Probably not, maybe eventually, right? most likely eventually, but when you've got an open program and you've got 20,000 companies across the United States you know, spending all that money and, it's, and they're able to not worry about you know, restrictions on the technology because of you know, military concerns, uh, that stuff proliferates out immediately and there are huge benefits to the economy in lots of different ways. Um, and, and this whole revolution happens on things. And there, are, there are a number of other aspects about that you, money. You're the first person, though, that, that when I've talked to about this that has mentioned about NASA giving birth to the computer revolution. I hadn't quite thought of it that way, but in very, it, it, it's true uh, as to the uh, integrated circuitry and, and all of that because, again, um, at that point, people were used to computers being the size of the room, and uh, very frankly, that was not what we were going to launch on board a command module. It needed to be certainly much, much more condensed. There's a lot of planning going on right now for Project Artemis to get back to the moon mm -hmm. and Mars. Absolutely. If you had the opportunity to counsel the administrator and, and others as we're planning to go about this, 
uh, going about this mission, what are two or three lessons that they should draw from from the Apollo era to help them make Artemis and subsequent missions a success? Well, actually, I do get to counsel the administrator. One of my one of my many job functions is to be the advisor to the administrator on historical matters. So um, I actually I get asked once in a while, you know, what I think about things, or or to you know prepare you know background information on whatever the topic might be that might be of interest. And so on Artemis, I think the important historical lessons from Apollo are that you need you need to have a clear objective. Uh, and in our case with Apollo, you had a president who had a very clear objective and, and set very clear parameters. You also, you know, the government doesn't run just on the executive agency, though, and one of the, the key things on Apollo that happened was the Congress moved very quickly and got on board very, very rapidly, and that story really hasn't been told very well, I don't think, about what happened between the time President Kennedy made that speech in May of 1961 and by the end of that summer when um, the Congress was, was you know, doubling NASA's budget that year and the next year and the next year. So um, having uh, congressional support is really important about that. And then the other lesson I draw is the importance of making sure your organization uh, is functional. Uh, NASA was in a huge growth spurt. There was a lot of potential for things to go wrong, and you needed to have an organization that was flexible but also rigid enough that uh, you could depend on in, you know, planning pr- for planning purposes and where things were going. One of the key figures in early NASA history that I think doesn't get a lot of credit is a guy named Hugh Dryden. Uh, Dryden had been head of the NACA, had thought that he was going to be head of NASA um, in the spring of 1958 when it was being created, but uh, certain congressional leaders didn't like him very much and blamed him for Sputnik, even though actually the opposite is true. He actually had been preparing the NACA for to be a space agency all through the 1950s. But nonetheless, he basically took the blame. He actually was, was offered a job as a professor at a major college in the, in the east, east coast of the U.S. and was planning on leaving uh, the, the organization. When Keith Glennon became the first administrator, he did so only on the condition that Dryden stayed around. Um, and then when Jim Webb comes in in 1961 as the new NASA administrator under the Kennedy administration, he said the same thing. He said, I'll, t- I'll take the job, but only if Hugh Dryden hangs around. Which tells you something about the importance of Dryden to uh, being a guy who understands the organization and how it's building and making sure that the infrastructure gets built. But also he was an important broker in, among all the very big egos that were happening. He's a very selfless kind of guy. And, and he played a really important role in getting the organization to work functionally by sort of providing the grease between the big personalities and making sure that uh, the organization functioned effectively. Um, so you, you need an organization that works together well and you need the right people in the right place uh, and they need, they need to be dedicated and you need someone to, to, to do that role, the broker role for you. What's the biggest historical surprise you've encountered in this job? For me, I've been a space fanatic since I was probably four years old, um, <laughs> I suspect. That's, ab- that's about the age my, my parents used to tell me, well, you, want, you used to want to be a dump truck driver, and then suddenly you got excited about the space stuff. Um, it's about the time of John Glenn's flight. Uh, so there wasn't a whole lot that I, that I sort of didn't know about our space history and NASA history. What really surprised me uh, a few years back was when we were getting ready for the NACA Centennial, you know, National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, um, and and I realized that I knew virtually nothing about the NACA and, and how important its role was in getting the United States to the forefront of aeronautics research in the 20s and 30s, and then what a big role it played 
in providing the margin of performance we needed in World War II and in, in, um, in aircraft to to win a war in World War II. Huge, huge impact. And then, of course, it, it then plays a role in, in supersonic high-speed flight research and then into the space program in the late 40s and 50s. But the NACA was, to me, the biggest surprise coming into this job was, was what a big impact it had on our history. What's better at capturing NASA's history? It's stunning visuals that come from its missions or the memos and conversations with the people who make all of that happen? I have to say both, right? And they, they both serve a function. The visuals are, of course, you know, pow- incredibly powerful and have, have been really sort of our, you know, the way we achieve brand recognition, I guess, if you want to call it that. But the images alone and, and the video alone don't tell you the story in depth like you, you need to understand. And there's a, there's a certain degree of depth of... Uh, being able to look at the documents and, and find out, for example, the role that Hugh Dryden plays in the early space program, or you know, uh, any number of other you know things that that seem um, unimportant. And so there's a place there. I mean, NASA deals with its its history in terms of you know applying it to the future in lots of different ways. We have a uh, knowledge management office that that deals largely with lessons learned, and lessons learned are great. I love them, but they don't give you the sort of deep textual depth of you know, why did this happen? You know, this is the lesson, but how did how did we wind up learning this lesson in the first place? And so there's a place, I think, for narrative history there. And you can't do the narrative history if you don't have the documents to, to understand it. And if you also don't have, for example, oral histories. And we have a very active oral history program where we you know, not only have the pieces of paper that, that people wrote about or the now electronic documents, but we also have, you know, the what's the story behind that by talking to people about uh, about that. So the oral history program is an important part as well as the documentary uh, evidence that we gather. I'm going to use your phrase. You described yourself as a self-professed space fanatic. Yep. <laughs> okay. Starting at the age of four, which is uh, probably about the same time as me uh, on all of that. But I've got an interesting a, age. Well, it, it certainly is impressionable. And moving from dump trucks to spacecraft is... Uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, a leap in a lot of different directions. But, <laughs> I, but I'm going to give you three seats at an imaginary dinner table to invite three space pioneers for dinner and to have a conversation. Who are those three people? Um, I wish I had like a hundred seats, but you got three. If it's, if it's just three. My research interest has largely been in the in the Soviet space program. So th- the top of my list has to be Sergei Pavlovich Korolev, who's the genius behind the early Soviet space program. He died unfortunately in 1966, but I would love to to meet him and, and, and talk with him. Um, Robert Goddard. I grew up in Massachusetts. Robert Goddard was a hometown hero, you know, there for me. And uh, until they chased him out of the border, chased him across the border, chased him into border. Chased us into Mexico. You know, we don't want to talk about that, do uh, you? Well, no, I don't want to talk about that. But, <laughs> but uh, Goddard is a, is another one of those guys that um, I think largely. I mean, he's, people know who he is now, but I think there's a lot about him that that's underappreciated. Don't, don't understand, yeah. Uh, and and really, it's it's sad that. Uh, uh, he did so much work, and then he winds up uh, dying during World War II, uh, working on solid fuel rocket motors out in, in Annapolis, Maryland, um, at the research facility attached to what's now the Naval Academy there. And um, and so that's Goddard's number two, and number three. Uh, I'm, I'm again going for the underdog here. Um, I'm going to have to go with Hugh Dryden, fascinating guy. <laughs> in the 1960s, 
Dryden, uh, you know, he gets passed over for the job, gets stuck in the, swallows his pride, stuck as a deputy at, at NASA for a long period of time. 1962, he's diagnosed with cancer and could easily have quit. But does he quit? No. He stays at the job and works until he dies in December 1965. And it, look at the kind of schedule he has. Uh, um, uh, I've gone to some of his records. He sent his personal records to Johns Hopkins, which is where he graduated from. The youngest PhD ever from Johns Hopkins, by the way. 1920, wrote his dissertation on supersonic flight. In the I, 20s. In, the, in 1920, yep. Um, but Dryden, like most NASA employees in the 1960s, worked a six-day week. Right? They, they had regular schedules on Monday through Friday. Saturday had all the, the meetings at NASA headquarters to talk about you know, where they were and what the plans were. Right? And you'd think that on the seventh day he would rest, but no. Dryden actually was a, an, a minister in the Methodist Church, and on Sundays, he would go out and give talks to churches all over the area, and sometimes he invited places, and refused to accept payment for it, because uh, normally it was an honorarium that went with that sort of thing. Uh, he would refuse to accept payment for those things, and he'd talk largely about the space program and its importance and its religious implications and things like that. Fascinating guy, and I'd love to have a chance to chat with him. In the 60s, NASA had an exclusive relationship with Life magazine that really captured the astronauts uh, at work and their missions and certainly captured their families. That type of exclusive relationship could not exist today and, and probably will not exist as we go through Project Artemis and the other missions, but I am curious from a historian's perspective, what do you hope to, what do you see as the methods that we're going to end up capturing this astronaut and their families and the larger story what do you see is going to capture that relationship so that your successors generations from now can sit here and talk about what were lessons learned what do you hope that they are going to use to tell that story well the life magazine contract is an interesting one and, and one that was fraught with a considerable amount of peril for nasa because of the ethical, there's some ethical concerns and, and other things. Uh, you notice that that got wrapped up reasonably quickly after the Mercury, or Seven sort of moved on. In those days, that's how you get to the, you either went through the three, the existing three network channels, or um, you, know, you went through, through news, ma most people do news magazines or newspapers. The world has changed now, and we've got social media and, and basically direct contact with the public, and um, I, I think we're gonna, we will see some sort of hybrid thing as we're doing now where NASA, um, you know, people find out about NASA information both online on the website but also through print media as well and, and traditional newspapers and, and media resources. But I think social media is really gives us a, a tool that allows us to go direct to people and interact in a way that, that wasn't possible before. You know, when, when I was a kid, and I did this all the time, if you wanted to find out about what was going on at NASA, you wrote a letter. You probably did this too, right? Yep. Yeah. I, 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 I write a letter like every month to a different NASA center because it's sending you a different package of stuff every time. And so, and you get this print stuff, right? Um, and nowadays, that's all, that's all available online. You can look around for it wherever you want online. And, but in those days, you, you had to communicate with the public was expensive and required printing things and, um, and a, a huge operation that interacted with, with brokers, you know, news media of various sorts. And now NASA can basically go direct as well as through those other sources. And, and that provides us a way to, to reach out to people and provides a connection. So if I'm a, you know, if, if I'm a space geek who, you know, is, wants to find out more about NASA, I can look at it online, but I, I can also tweet to, you know, at NASA History, which is our Twitter account, uh, and say, hey, what about this? And, and guess what? 
I have someone that will answer your question for you. At least most of the time. I mean, some days we're really busy. We don't get to all the questions. But, but um, so that provides, I think, a degree of connectedness with the program where people can feel more like they're part of the program. And we deliberately, you know, in our social media um, outreach, especially in the history program, you know, the part that I oversee anyway, we deliberately try and make people feel like they're, you know, they're part of the program. You know, we, we, we don't use astronauts full long names and titles. You know, it's not Dr. Blah, 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 blah. It's, it's you know, Chris Hadfield or whoever it is that, that you're using. Um, because we want people to feel like, you know, these, you're part of this team. You know, you're, you're a ta- particularly if you're a taxpayer in the United States, if you're paying for this, you know, you can be part of this and not only be involved in it in some way, but maybe, you know, if you're a kid and you're looking for the future, maybe you're going to be, you're working for NASA someday or for some company that does aerospace exploration work or whatever. Uh, you know, you, you may take you, like me, 40 years to get there, but you may actually wind up, you know, having a business card with a NASA meatball on it. You know? And, and, and maybe even being chief historian. Maybe. But you're going to hold on to this job for a while. Uh, um, I'm kind of enjoying it so far. Well, I can imagine that. Two quick final questions. What's your favorite NASA history moment? Oh, mm, got to pick one. Yeah, there are so many to choose from. Um, and you can't say Apollo Eleven. Yeah, that that would be too obvious at this point, right? Um, I think probably Apollo Thirteen. I mean, that really, uh, much as much as Apollo Eleven was really important, uh, it was a milestone breakthrough. Apollo Thirteen brought us brought NASA back from irrelevance in some ways. Uh, you know, we'd achieved the objective of landing on the moon and the public really completely lost interest. I remember being really frustrated with, uh, with Apollo 13 because the networks weren't covering, carrying the coverage uh, before the accident happened. Uh, but suddenly, you know, people became more interested, uh, astronauts became more uh, more part of the public um, debate. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways that, that sort of um, you know rescued the Apollo program from um, a much slower burnout, I suppose, in some ways. Uh, so I thought Apollo 13, but there is, you know. Um, my favorite picture, let me, th- let me throw this one. My favorite picture, though, is actually of um, um, our, the Mars exploration rover sitting on the edge of a crater on Mars, taken by the Mars, a Mars orbiter. <laughs> I mean, how cool is this that we have robot probes on the surface of another planet, and being, we have pictures of them from our other robot probes in orbit around those planets. That's, that's one of my favorites. That's pretty amazing. That's it. Last question. You mentioned uh, having spent some time in Colorado Springs. What's your favorite part of Colorado Springs? The Air Force Academy. <laughs> that's a required answer. I'm a graduate of the Academy. So <laughs> but but uh, I, I love Colorado Springs. It's, uh, I, I spent uh, the late 70s there as a student at the Air Force Academy, and then I was back in the late 80s as an instructor on the faculty, and again in the late 90s as an instructor on the faculty. And uh, it's just a, it's a great place for family. The facilities out there are great. The climate is wonderful. It's a really nice place to live. And uh, uh, it's, a, it's, it's really, for my family, it's our second home. And, uh, I'm getting homesick now just thinking about it. Bill Berry, thank you very much. Um, This is Rich Cooper, who's been having a great conversation here with NASA Chief Historian Bill Berry. This has been the Space for You podcast, where, again, we capture the thoughts and experiences of the people who make uh, today's space adventures possible. 
Bill, thank you for what you and your team do to record that uh, history and share it with all of us. And remember uh, to keep uh, watch for future episodes of the Space for You podcast. More are always available at our website at spacefoundation.org. And always remember at the Space Foundation, we have space for you. Thank you.